how do you introduce Apocalypse Now? What am I even doing here? This is one of the great films of all time. It's incredible that we're not saving this for bonus content. I'm not even sure how crowdfunding works, but I've got enough sense not to just slip Apocalypse Now into the regular feed. Why was I not consulted on this? They're going to come to me in a month and say, We need bonus content. Let's do a special episode on Ben Affleck's Pearl Harbor. That's a film that will live in infamy even greater than the sneak attack it claims to portray. Let's eat pork chops and hate watch Mel Gibson's The Patriot. My co-hosts think creating Stockholm Syndrome in your listeners is how you build a fan community. Meanwhile, here's one of the all-time great war movies just plopped onto your lunch tray like Turkey Tetrazzini. Part of the reason it's impossible for me to introduce this movie is it feels over-introduced already. There's an entire war movie about the making of this war movie. It's not just that I've seen this movie a bunch of times, it's that I've watched it as different people. The first time, I thought it was going to be an action movie full of helicopter explosions, and I was very confused and alarmed through the whole thing. And then they chopped a cow in half. The second time, I knew a little bit more about Vietnam and and felt ready to understand the subtext, but I completely overestimated my readiness and mostly just tried to remember the good quotes about napalm in the morning and so forth so the 8th graders at Wendler Junior High School didn't think I was some kid who hadn't been in the shit. The third time, I'd actually read the Conrad novel and was prepared to get all deep with it, but I was with people who liked the doors, and we all got high, and they talked over it, acted like it was a movie, and I stopped being friends with them after that. The fourth time, I was trying to introduce it to a new girlfriend, and she was very disappointed at how this date night was going, and I couldn't blame her, but also did she notice that the tale of the crashed B-52 was Coppola's way of indicating that they were way up in Cambodia by that point? Then there was the time I saw it at the multiplex, where I really shouldn't have seen it, because it had a bunch of extra scenes added in that had been cut out of it originally because they were not good scenes and were not needed in the film, but were added back in during an era when a certain generation of filmmaker had the power and technology to act like Walt Whitman and keep revising their leaves of grass, answering questions no one had asked, like, what was the French colonial perspective at this stage, I wonder? It's hard to imagine a time when this was just a movie in the theaters, competing against the Muppet movie and the first Star Trek movie for your $2.50 ticket price. It's not hard for me to imagine, actually, because I was 10 years old and I saw both of those other movies and was forbidden to see Apocalypse Now because even my dad, who thought it was appropriate to take his kid to see all that jazz, he knew better than to let me see whatever bad acid trip Apocalypse Now is supposed to be. You know what film swept the Oscars the year this was released? Kramer vs. Kramer. I'm tempted to start another podcast where I just watch 80s divorce porn family dramas with other middle-aged latchkey kids where we cry in our bowls of air-popped popcorn about how our moms went to work instead of staying home to cut the crusts off of our cheese sandwiches. At least that podcast would have the good sense to put Kramer vs. Kramer behind a freaking paywall for our top donors. Today on Friendly Fire... A film that almost killed its star and literally drove its director to madness. A film that, in a dark irony it's probably best we not examine too closely, used the actual combat helicopters of the kleptocratic Ferdinand Marcos regime when they weren't otherwise engaged killing local rebels. A film that contains the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. The devil being Marlon Brando and the trick being Marlon Brando's performance. Today on Friendly Fire, Apocalypse Now. Not Rigia. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast with three hosts who are ready to impress you with our choreographed dance routine to Suzy Q. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Legally, you're obligated to use Credence songs in any Vietnam movie, and this one checks that <laughs> box about halfway through. I had not seen the OG version of this film in a long time. I bought the DVD of Apocalypse Now Redux, not realizing what I was buying oh, years man. ago. Oh, oof. I've never seen the Redux, so I don't know what's what's there to make fun of. What's the diff? There's a big extended scene where they like have a hang with the playmates after that scene. Totally awful. There's also a whole sequence where they go hang out at a French colonial estate and like have a very fancy dinner with French people. As an appreciator of French culture, was that one of your favorite scenes, Ben? Yeah, it's really hard for me to decide which is the more jackable of the two <laughs> added scenes. The thing is that Ben is, uh, you know, he's a Francophile, but he's also a fervent anti-colonialist. So he was really torn by the 20 minutes. Uh, so we only had half an erection. <laughs> because they spend yeah. that 20 minutes justifying colonialism. Well, you know, like how, like when you think in retrospect about something that was titillating to you, it's like, it's very like, like denigrating to somebody or it seems, it seems prurient and bad, but colonialism kind of has that effect. You know, I find it very exciting in, in an erotic sense. It's got taboo rhythms. <laughs> every minute I stay in this room, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. This is um, probably the most spaced out movie we've watched yet. Spaced out how? You mean like the scenes are spaced out with long interregnums? No, like the, it's like everybody is inebriated and I feel like the film makes you feel like you're on the drugs that everybody is doing the entire time. The film makes me feel extremely paranoid because everything is, is POV. Like, there's so many shots of people looking to camera and just staring. It's deeply unsettling. Yeah, it really is. As someone who knows some people who have done drugs, psychedelic drugs, <laughs> um, this movie is one of two movies ever made, I think, that actually conveys what it feels like to be on, uh, like hallucinating. The other being uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, I only have the Redux version of that. Also. <laughs> well, the, ext the extended scene where they're at a Portuguese colony and talking about Playboy bunnies. But it really does. This movie for two and a half hours makes you feel like you're tripping. And it has all of the qualities like the feeling of menace, but also excitement and the kind of like buzzing, ringing that accompanies it and the you know like i can't tell whether i'm supposed to be delighted or horrified yeah did that guy just say that thing or did i imagine him saying that thing <laughs> yeah uh was, was he wearing a hat just a second ago and now he's not wearing a hat uh yeah. it's really it's profound and to i think to watch it i mean it's the it it is the best lsd movie ever this film is such a different type of horror than the other war films that we've watched for this project because it seems like open world war is a different type of scary than the kind of 
Disney Jungle Cruise from Hell version of war that we get here in which like they're on the boat for almost the entire movie and they're just headed to a destination and they even mention like you can't get off the boat that single-minded mission from one dot on a map to the other and it just feels inescapable like the boat is this like open thing and yet it somehow feels claustrophobic right it's a small river. It's You're close to each side. There's nowhere you could be on that river where you would be out of range of somebody just crouching in the in the jungle exactly two feet behind the, the front layer of foliage. And you would be, I mean, where would you go? I wouldn't right. want to just sit up on the front with my shirt off. I'd, I'd be cowering, cowering beneath with a loaded gun, but it's probably 200 degrees in the hold of that boat. Yeah. You talk about the paranoia of, of like the the shot selection of always being looked at, but there's another version of that here too, which is when you're on the boat, you're constantly feeling like you're being looked at from inside the jungle. Yeah. Anyone can look at you if they want to, and you can't see them. I thought about the feeling of being on that boat, especially given the opening voiceover when you know he's talking about how he's he's cycled back to the world and now he's back in Vietnam looking for a mission because when he was stateside he was all he could think about was getting back into the jungle and now he's in Saigon and all he can think about is getting back into the jungle and then he is in this kind of like this liminal state that is like neat, like jungle adjacent but it is not the jungle it's this weird little isolated pod on on the river and like they never come back to that idea of how much you wanted to get back to the jungle but it almost feels like this movie is it, it's tempting him with the the craziness of that the entire time but it never pays off and like by the time they get to the end it's uh, it's not really the jungle that's there for him i think they had to establish Martin Sheen's character in that way to make it feel like in accomplishing the mission that he's given to kill Kurtz, he has to destroy the thing inside him that is so familiar, right? Like you need the bookends on either side to make that feel appropriate. If it's just Martin Sheen buttoned up Colonel ready to, you know, do the mission, I don't, I think it feels far more hollow. Yeah. He has to become more. Oh, right. Like, like John Rambo taught us uh, many films ago, to survive war, you have to become war. <laughs> wow. First of all, Martin Sheen was a captain. Let's not make that mistake again, Adam. That's what I said. I said Martin Sheen is the captain. <laughs> Look at me. Look, Look at, at Martin me. Sheen. <laughs> Martin Sheen's the captain now. <laughs> I mean, there are so many ways that we can talk about this movie as a kind of metaphor for the American experience in Vietnam, but I think a, a major way that soldiers and Marines felt in Vietnam was that they were constantly being surveilled. They could never fully apprehend the enemy. Although it's weird to be on a Navy, you know, to be, to spend the, the whole film with a Navy crew, which is not how you typically see Vietnam. It does have that oppressive claustrophobia. You always think, uh, oh, I'll join the Navy and then I'll be you know, I'll have the safety of a boat offshore and right. then these guys stuck in a little PBR going up a river. To see this movie properly in 1979, you have to have the context that up until this point, there was no uh, Vietnam War movie. It wasn't yet a genre. 
the big war movie before this was John Wayne's dumb Green Beret movie, <laughs> which we should also watch just because it's filmed in Burbank. <laughs> so a lot of the things that feel like Vietnam tropes, a lot of the, um, you know, this was the first movie and it was trying to convey the whole war to a nation that had, you know, the war was, was only over for probably six years when this movie came out and they started filming it. You know, Coppola wanted to film it in Vietnam while the war was on when they first started filming. Wow. Um, which is bananas to think about. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think there were Vietnamese extras in this film who had only just arrived in the Philippines from, you know, escaping from Vietnam. They'd been there for a couple of weeks and somebody came along and was like, hey, you know what? You guys would be perfect for this scene where you get, like, machine gunned to death in this movie we're making about about the war you just escaped. Yeah. Nuts. Talk about getting discovered. <laughs> In a malt shop, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever means available. The mission is also such a fucked up idea compared to what, like, the jingoistic war movie of, of yore uh, would have been about. It's like, we're going to go kill an American colonel. Or, like, specifically, you're going to go kill an American colonel who has gone mad. It's got to be unprecedented in war movies up to that point. Yeah, like, the, there can't have been that many that, like, even that even included the idea that an American could go mad from doing a war. That an American colonel was even incompetent. Right. But that's the thing, is, like, he is hyper-competent. And it's almost, like, I almost feel like that's the most John Milius thing about this movie, is is this idea that the reason they're losing is that the generals are are too humane and need to like kill the enemy with more brutality the way Kurtz is doing or that the uh, the generals and the war machine are trying to fight the war clinically from the air and Kurtz is making it personal and that's the thing that they can't abide but to say that do you believe that Brando's Kurtz character is made into a hero figure in this film. I feel like we need to address Brando in a whole separate category because to <laughs> me, Brando feels so, I mean, I've seen this movie 400 times and Brando always feels like he's just, it's a separate movie. As soon as he arrives for years, I tried to integrate Brando into this movie as a viewer, I tried to accept him as Kurtz and form everything else in this movie, which I think is, I mean, I think it's just such a brilliant and affecting and engaging and just overwhelming movie up until the point that Martin Sheen arrives there at, at uh, Brando Town. <laughs> um, but from that point on, the thing just comes completely unhinged and Brando isn't as an actor is not the Kurtz we have spent two hours trying to find. He's something other entirely. Yeah. And something I don't, I have to say now loving this film, I do not want Brando there. Is it because you think he's actually bad in the role or do you not want Brando there because he is like so much 
scarier and more troubling than what we thought we were going to get. No, I think he's bad. Wow. I think he's bad because he's a bad actor here. He was at the the height of his authority in Hollywood. He commanded an enormous salary to do this picture. You know, he kind of fell off toward the end of the 60s, and then he was in The Godfather, and again, he was this, you know, enormous star. And, you know, the, the, the stories about him on this picture are famous. He showed up 80 pounds overweight, having not read the script, <laughs> having not read Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, or even being aware of it. John, those are all things that I did before getting on mic for this show. So <laughs> right. I'm able to forgive him. Uh, and, and like you, Adam, he began to immediately began to argue with Coppola about the script, <laughs> about the character, a character which he has <laughs> done no research about and hasn't even read the script. He's just arguing, just immediately starts arguing. And so what we end up with in this movie is Kurtz, not as the director or writer saw him, but just the Kurtz we could manage to get out of Brando. You know, he'd already been paid three and a half million dollars or, or assured it. And you just, you were pot committed to him. You know, he had to film him in darkness and Brando improvises most of his lines, just kind of like half remembering poems that he learned in college. <laughs> when I first saw this movie on VHS tape in 1980, whenever, three, yeah, he was terrifying. And that whole end was just, I mean, was just completely overwhelming, all-encompassing. But it's also wrong. Hmm. I have never had that reaction to him. And I look at the at the way he's shot and the way, the way it all works in the edit. And, like, I think about, like, how you get coverage for these scenes. You know, there's, there's kind of his, his castle or, or whatever it is. I guess it's not... It's kind of a temple, right, that he's living temple, in? Temple, yeah. You know, the space around it, the cages that Sheen winds up in. I feel like the coverage that they have in the edit doesn't make any sense, and yet somehow it holds together and makes this... makes Like, Kurtz is terrifying, and terrifying in a way that I never quite expect having watched the, the two hours leading up to his reveal. That craziness that he he brought with not really knowing what it was or what he was doing i i almost imagine like played into how terrifying it is because it's like he he is the heart of darkness you know <laughs> like to me he really inhabits that role like the guy that has gone fully to the darkness within him that coverage issue is really interesting to me because how is coverage used primarily it's used to establish location and you can't get comfortable in the temple because you aren't exactly sure yeah how it's mapped out yeah like, you don't like know where with, you are right and i think that i think that serves the character and it serves the moment it definitely feels like we've been in a film up until that point where the geography of where we are even if it's wrong and I mean, wrong in the sense that there is no river that does this job. Right. That goes from central Vietnam to Cambodia. But you, you at least have the mental geography of like, we're on a river. We're going up the river. And then you get to that temple and you never know where you are. 
I mean, you climb up those initial stairs and then it's like, (laughs) (laughs) there's like, sometimes you're going up a hill. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're surrounded by heads. It's the most high you feel in the whole film, which is saying a lot. Yeah. Because like the space makes no sense. But Brando himself, I mean, he's basically playing Nero. How do you even gain 80 pounds in Cambodia? (laughs) There's no food in Cambodia. It's a lot of green onion pancakes. It's like, like, where does the character, you know, where does this like late Roman Empire Caesar come from? Well, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dead humans around. Yeah, I suppose. he is crazy AF. He could be, he could be eating them. That's true. He could be eating sea rations. I I don't know. I mean, I'm having this reaction more strongly now, watching this movie now. I don't think I ever accepted him as Kurtz. I just didn't know that I had an option not to. Uh, And I feel now watching it this time that I put myself in the production of the movie maybe for the first time. Right. And I mean, I have so much sympathy for these guys trying to cut together 200 hours of film (laughs) into two and a half hours of movie and famously right they went into the jungle without a a conclusion to this movie and just figured they'd wing it and find an ending and depending on what cut of this film you watch the ending is different every time the first version of this film I watched on VHS when Lance and Uh, Martin Sheen pull away in the PBR after having killed Kurtz you hear that radio going and he doesn't turn the radio off or or maybe he does but what you see in the closing credits is a massive napalm laden bombing run that suggests not doesn't suggest I mean it it absolutely communicates that Martin Sheen called in an airstrike and vaporized the temple and everyone there. That was the ending on the first version of this I saw. And it made sense. It made more sense. And in a way, although it was awful, it gave you some feeling that the mission had even been completed, kind of. I mean, the idea of killing Kurtz with a machete and then... And then leaving. (laughs) Leaving his weird cult intact for the next special forces guy in line, you know, for Scott Glenn to step up and be like, well, I guess I'm the God. Now you really feel like the movie has barely an ending. And I put that all on Brando. The version that I saw, John, I thought was, was the OG version was the Ur version, which ends with the boat cruising away. And there is no napalm. And there's no credits even. Yeah, it just, it, it like fades out on the boat turning around to cruise away. Right. And so my question for the group is, has it ever been established which film is the, is the true version of this film? Because there are so many. It's the Blade Runner problem. It is, yeah. The version that went to Cannes Film Festival and won the Palme d'Or wasn't even finished. Right. So is that the definitive version or is the one that was released in New York, San Francisco and L.A. that played for 
six weeks where it wasn't available anywhere else in the country. Did you hear the story that Coppola's original idea was that he was going to build a movie theater in Kansas? Right. And just show Apocalypse Now. And if you wanted to see the movie, you had to go drive to it? That, to me, says that the project was more of an art project than it ever was supposed to be a film. (laughs) (laughs) It says to me, 1970s. Like, yeah. They were all so high. Yeah. Everybody was so high. This was uh, back when cocaine was good for you. Yeah. The idea of a definitive version might be a misnomer, since there are several released versions. I mean, I don't think that Redux really holds together the way this version does, but I do wish we had that napalm at the end. Yeah, I mean, Redux, when I watched Redux, I could barely keep down my lunch <laughs> i was satisfied watching the version without the napalm tbh you were yeah have you seen the one with the napalm no because the whole film you know it's punctuated by this extreme violence but for so long it is so meditative and i feel like it ends the way it begins in that meditative way and for that reason it satisfied me mm-hmm was that a fart sound on your mic, John? God damn it. Why do you have to fart while I'm talking? Oh, I'm so glad that you were able to perceive the fart. How dare you? Did you fart into your mic? No, it was miles away from the mic. It was just a really, I mean, Adam inspired me wow. with his opinions. To convert them immediately into natural gas. I'm looking at my notes, John, and I'm starting to rethink my perception of Kurtz to come more in line with your with your thinking. Because what do you what did you write down? A bunch of stuff like I don't believe in Kurtz. I wrote down if is the middle word in life, and then <laughs> the note Kurtz is writing motivational office posters. <laughs> hey, there's our next merch item right there. Yeah. Obviously, if you had cast Clint Eastwood in the role of Kurtz, (laughs) we'd be looking at a very different movie. Yeah. And I don't know what, I don't know who I'm thinking of that could be up there and be that scary while maintaining any kind of feeling that he actually matches the character of this person. The Eastwood version would have him sitting in a rocking chair at the top of the temple, <laughs> squinting at all the Asians below him, going full Gran Torino. <laughs> they really ought to clean up all these severed heads. Now that's how guys talk to one another. The casting list for this film, all of the options that they had, is really a who's who of great actors in the late 70s. Sort of incredible to, to sort of fantasy filmmake alternate versions of this film based on who were up for all these parts yeah like nick nolte i mean who would you put i feel like modern nick nolte would make a great kurt like the nolte we have of right now Uh be great fun if you remade apocalypse now what war would you set it in because it's i mean like it's just about going up a river and killing a crazy man if it's the adaptation of heart of darkness and not the vietnam film do you do you have to stick with that war I think the, the idea is fairly portable, right? The mission of destroying the thing inside yourself that war has corrupted 
Yeah, but in uh, destroying it, sort of becoming it. You could export that into a movie about working in a grocery store. <laughs> Restocking aisle seven the entire time. Right. <laughs> Someday you're going to make it up to the break room. Then the real shit's going to go down. Yeah. <laughs> the geography is so important, though, because where in the world anymore is there this place that the further up the river you go, the further away like when they turn that boat around at the end, you're conscious that they have to go all the way back down that river. They can't just get off the boat and call a helicopter to come rescue them. Well, do you guys want to hear a mistake in the film that a pedant has posted on IMDb? There are so many mistakes in this film. Like, <laughs> I don't know where you would start. Yeah, I was just going to say, I read somewhere that this film has more continuity errors and other mistakes in it than almost any other film. Well, I picked this one both because I, I thought it was interesting from a filmmaking perspective, but also because it, like, unlocked the thought technology for me. Here it is. The Viet Cong's tracer bullet seen quite often throughout the film, notably when the PT boat is sprayed with enemy fire, appear to be red in color. In reality, the Viet Cong used green tracer ammunition, while the Americans used red tracer ammunition. There is, like, some utility in that, right? If you see ammunition that is one color coming at you, you know that it's, you know, not friendly fire or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but also... Nice plug. Uh, I grew up... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody listening to this should also check out our podcast, Friendly Fire. Um, I remember, like, watching G.I. Joe as a kid and thinking that they were shooting, like, Star Wars lasers at each other. Because there's all these, all these like different colors of of light going back and forth, and and in reading that, I realized like, oh, those are probably tracer bullets. They're probably not shooting lasers in GI Joe. Like as a filmmaker, I don't know that I would ever think of that kind of thing. And I guess you need to have like a some kind of consultant on your set that can spot those things. You know, that knows the things you don't know you don't know. But it also like as a viewer, it doesn't bump me at all. It's just. There's just shit flying out of the jungle at the boat. And then I, like, imagine myself in the shoes of this pedant who probably was there in Vietnam, like, in-country being pedantic. And this, like, ma would make no sense. Like, wh like who's who's in those jungles? A bunch, of, uh, a bunch of American GIs shooting at the boat? Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> at that point, when, when the boat was attacked after they were in Cambodia after they were past the Dolong Bridge and all that stuff started coming out of the jungle, I had no idea who it was. Like, we were, we were way past the point where I felt confident who the enemy was or whether that was yeah. just ma maniacs firing found weapons. It could be Kurtz guys that have American ammunition, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the next scene, they're getting... There's a hail of fake arrows. So that seems weirdly over pedantic. Also, those aren't tracer bullets. They are clearly fireworks. Yeah, because... they're like, because they arc too much, right? Like they. Yeah. Well, and they're huge and they're flares and stuff's going <laughs> pop, 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 pop. Yeah. I mean, it's not. We're out like... of budget. Let's, let's buy a case of Roman candles. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> that tracer scene is the scene uh, in which Clean is killed. Clean. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, played by the 14-year-old Lawrence Fishburne. Shit. You can do anything you want to. That's why Vietnam must have been so much fun. I would watch a movie about how a 14-year-old got to the Philippines to be in this film. Yeah. 14 playing 17. Kind of incredible. 
and supposedly got addicted to heroin. Thanks to Dennis Happer. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, what, what kind of time was it? I mean, I guess these were the Roman Polanski years, right? You want to learn from the best, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, geez. I mean, the cast of the film is so good. And so, you know, we don't really have the, the normal trope of like the Italian guy, the Jewish guy. It's much sort of maybe closer to what you'd actually see in Vietnam. And it doesn't feel like a, uh, a rainbow cast. It feels like, like a random cast. You know, a, right. a guy from New Orleans and some guy from the Bronx and a California surfer. Like it, it, it has that diversity, but it doesn't have it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. All right. It is. It's not like checking boxes to like fill out quadrants on a marketing plan. Right. Where people are like, why aren't there any more Louisianans represented <laughs> in films? <laughs> but so many iconic characters, so many quotable lines in a movie where there's an awful lot of silence. Like Colonel Kilgore has a pretty long scene where he is just soliloquizing. <laughs> but then there are just long, long periods where our main character doesn't say anything. Yeah, and there's also like even when there is dialogue, sometimes this like in the sound design it is de-emphasized. Like the whole air cav sequence, like when they're assaulting Charlie's point is like you can tell that they're communicating things about things, you know, targets that they want to take out and enemy gun positions that they want to bomb but like it's not it's not up in the mix where it's like oh we need to hear this dialogue it's just it's almost part of the crazy background noise of the attack and it it almost doesn't serve the function of dialogue in a way it communicates that these guys are approaching the bombing of this village as a kind of sport yeah and all that jargonese that we would hear in other films you hardly pick it up at all. It's just like... It's right in the same part of the mix as the chopper blades and the explosions and the screaming people down below. And then you get like a nice clean mix on Robert Duvall talking about how the how the break goes two different directions. You could get two <laughs> different guys up on the wave at the same time. Kilgore maybe best embodies the idea that to survive the war, you need to not really be there in your head. Mm -hmm. You know, like he is almost godlike in how he's he's standing up while everyone else is is inside a bunker. He's walking around with with a plum, like like he's not in a in a battle at all, and he's enjoying it. And he's talking about surf, and this is a theme that's exported to other characters too, like. Uh, like surfer boy isn't really there for most of the film. Kurtz really isn't there. Yeah. Martin Sheen really isn't there because he's inside the file about Kurtz. Like so many of these main characters in order to experience the war are turning off whatever humanity they have and they're becoming something else either through substance or, or an attitude. But the whole Playboy bunny scene is completely not there. Like nobody there is there. Yeah. Right. Uh, the supply clerk isn't in Vietnam. He's like trying to turn a buck. <laughs> um, even the guys that are the most in Vietnam, little team of guys that's defending the Dolong Bridge, those guys, I mean, Roach is so far from there, you can't even believe it. And he's the most in the thick of it. 
Yeah. You know who's the most there? It's Chief Phillips. It's the captain of the boat. Yeah. He's the one that always knows where they are. He always knows this is a bad mission and a bad situation. He's always trying to convince Willard to turn around. Like, he's the one that, that's totally actualized in his situation in a way that I don't think any other character is. Yeah, he's And there, he gets a right. fucking spear through the chest for it. And, and he understands the absurdity of that. Like, of all ways to go there, that's how he goes out. A spear. That scene where he tries to kill Sheen, he's pulling captain willard toward the tip of the sphere like like not because it's willard's fault or it's like let's just double down on the absurdity of this by me killing you also yeah Yeah. right he's not against the mission he's not trying to protect anybody he just wants to kill him because fuck you yeah because fuck you (laughs) it's so hard i think watching this movie this time i realized that it just goes from one set piece to the next even the narrator's voice is just kind of like narrating this it's just narrating confusion it's not making you feel more secure and each one of those little set pieces is so phenomenal like such a brilliant little it's filmed so beautifully it heightens the tension each time you think that it just can't get any weirder or crazier even past the dolong bridge when they go under that b-52 tail yeah i love that shot I remember as a, you know, watching that as a young teenager feeling like, how do you get, how do you make something crazier than <laughs> Dolong Bridge? And then it's a B-50, a crashed B-52 in the river. Yeah. And the only way to get, the only way to get down the river or up the river rather is to go under the tail. It was just like, ah. Oh. Such a small detail, but I mean, and obviously not a small set to construct, but like such a heavy, just a heavy idea. It really makes a person feel small when you go under the tail of a B-52. One of the craziest scenes is when they pull over the sampan. It's like, it's kind of dovetails with what you were talking about, Adam, with the fact that Chief Phillips is the only one that's really there. He sort of tries to pull them all into the war for a second, and they're so out of it that it goes sideways so fast and so badly. They're tearing apart these people's boat, which is obviously like all these people own in the world, and one wrong move and clean misinterprets what the lady is doing and starts shooting the boat up, and by the time everything dies down, like everybody in the boat, not chef, is dead. Didn't that feel to you like a contemporary police shooting? It did. I mean, and it also... It felt that scary. Yeah, like mm-hmm. Martin Sheen enters the war for a second to finish off the lady and, and say, like, let's get back to what we were doing. I told you not to stop, is what he says. Yeah. It's a very similar scene to the air cavalry assault. The Americans, like, don't care at all about what's going on in the in the war and what's going on for the people whose lives they're upending i mean they're you know they're taking out this entire village because they want to surf and then they're shooting up this boat because this lady was trying to protect her puppy i I feel like our our main characters in the boat sort of come away from the air cavalry assault unscathed by the the point that that scene is making and then the film makes the exact same point about them like 10 minutes later I mean, this is definitely 
in the category of a film that dehumanizes the enemy throughout, we never, ever meet a Vietnamese person. Yeah, I think the closest we get is the, like, interpreter who doesn't want to give water to the guy that's holding his guts in with a pot lid. Yeah, he's the only Vietnamese person that has any, like, lines that that are audible. And, and in the setup for the air cav assault, we get that establishing shot of, you know, the, the school kids coming out of the school and people in that square just kind of minding their own business going about their day and it seems kind of like almost an idyllic place but for most of the film and then of course at the end ersatz cambodians that that populate kurt's world absolutely dehumanized and so it's a movie that i think subsequent vietnam war movies over time obviously rambo had more vietnamese people with speaking roles unfortunately they were all extras taken from a chinese restaurant (laughs) But over time, you know, we, we have tried to portray that war more and more with, you know, some attempt to portray the Vietnamese experience. But it's utterly absent here. They're just targets. What mean expendable? I think by the time this episode is out, our, uh, our live show about Rambo First Blood Part Two will be in the Maximum Fund donor feed. So if... If you want to know what we've been talking about every time we've done a uh, a Rambo joke, calling back to that, <laughs> got to get in that donor feed. Get in the feed. I uh, had dinner with a friend the other day, and I said that we were going to be reviewing Apocalypse Now. He told me something I didn't know, which is that George Lucas was originally Milius's collaborator on the script. And George Lucas quit working on it because he hated working with John Milius so much and went off and wrote Star Wars. I want to watch the uh, the 70s cop show starring Lucas and Milius as like beard bros. I don't know if I could tell them apart if they were in the same room. Oh, you you could tell because Milius would be wearing like cargo shorts and right. brandishing a pistol. <laughs> I know within movie heads, he's written a lot of stuff, but he's kind of a James Cameron type, or he's John Goodman in The Big Lebowski? Well, yeah, that character is based on John Milius. No, really? Really. Yeah. I just nailed that without even trying? Yeah. Nicely done. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Well done. To think that this movie was being made contemporaneously with Star Wars. And think about how Star Wars exists in our minds as a real period piece now. And part of that is that we identify it so much with our childhoods. I don't know what Star Wars would look like if you just watched it totally clean. But this movie, it's weird to think that you would compare Apocalypse Now and Star Wars and think that Apocalypse Now had stayed fresher almost. It doesn't feel so much in the period as a film Mm -hmm. rather you know it's um it 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 holds up whereas star wars more and more feels very rooted in the 70s come at me (laughs) no i don't think our listeners have strong feelings about star wars (laughs) oh so many tweets so just a wave of angry tweets and reddit posts 
I was just thinking about how the true reason that Lucas and Milius must have argued was that Milius can actually write good dialogue. <laughs> oh, punch. That's my high punch take. Bird. On the belt. This party's over. I feel like we could do an entire podcast on the sound design of this film. I agree. And the score. It's very similar score to Scarface. Because those synthesizers that are being used and the, you know, the instrumentation, when we hear those sounds in pop music made at that same time, like Gary Newman sort of Juno 6 synthesizers, that music sounds very early 80s synth music. Right. Because those synths are so, they're distinctive sounding and we think of them as I mean, at least through the 90s, we thought of them as corny. (laughs) And then in the 2000s, we started to go back to those synths and find other sounds in them. But I mean, you think about like the way that those Moogs are used in Steve Miller band or heart records where it's like, you know, (laughs) fly like an eagle, which is about the same time. Yeah. But here those synths are deployed so ominously and so imaginatively that again it doesn't really sound dated even just from an instrumentation standpoint i mean it's really above all else the thing that communicates that yeah that oppressive feeling throughout it feels less like music and more like just a feeling mm-hmm. it's uh just an emotional bed humid music it is yeah mm. that's a good description it also is communicating machines, right? You'll get helicopter noises within the synths. And it will sometimes stand in place of the sound of motors or the sound of bullets. And it's all coming in the, in the soundtrack rather than in the sound effects. And that's quite an accomplishment too. Because it never feels intrusive. You're never like, that's not a helicopter. It feels like that's a fucking space helicopter from Tripland. <laughs> yeah, that's such a weird magic trick, right? Like, it feels like there should be kind of an uncanny valley effect to making a synth helicopter sound and the sound of a helicopter, but they never, they never clash in a bad way. It always sounds interesting and visceral. If you compare it to the fake helicopter sound at the beginning of Aldo Nova's hit song, Fantasy... Life is just a fantasy. Can you live that fantasy life? <laughs> that would have come out when Ben's parents were still sipping from a single straw at the malt shop <laughs> before he was even a twinkle in their eye. He's probably a twinkle in his dad's eye. His mom was still a little bit dubious. She still is. <laughs> uh, but again, that the helicopter sounds that you would hear in pop music probably made on similar instruments all sound completely ridiculous now but somehow in this movie i don't know and it won an oscar for sound and a lot of times the movie that wins an oscar for sound it's because the sound was the sound was designed well enough that you don't notice it right but from the beginning Mm. of this movie to the end you're just so uh, enveloped in in that music and that uh, just the sounds it's um what other war movie podcast do you get a deep aldo nova comparison i'm that's what i'm here for right historical context and in this case aldo nova (laughs) you know on the one hand you get the sound of one of the hosts deeply farting (laughs) 
And then 30 minutes later, you get Aldo Nova references. <laughs> At this point in the show, I should probably take a big bite of a peanut butter sandwich <laughs> just for all the people that have commented on it from episode one. <laughs> Let me just take this opportunity to really apologize profusely to everyone who is offended. Oh, man. I, uh... <laughs> I don't know how to. Uh, I don't know how to put something out in the world and not just uh, get a deluge of like the the bad feeling tweets feel ten times worse than a hundred good feeling tweets. You know. Yeah, yeah. Bad feeling tweets, so bad. Yeah, keep them to yourself. Well, Francis Ford Coppola isn't on Twitter, and maybe there's something we can learn from him. <laughs> hey, I've got a question for the group. This is sort of a horror movie, right? What was the scariest scene in the film to you? Hmm. So many. I think the silence of a lot of people is profoundly scary to me. And so when the boat finally reaches the destination and the temple and they have to idle through the boats full of totally silent tribesmen painted in white, just staring at them going through... I think that was the moment in the film that gave me the deepest chills. And this film does that a lot. Like, the silence of people is what's so scary. Like, for all of Brando's cheesy monologuing, like, his silence is what is threatening. Well, and the scariest yeah. guy in the in the giving him the mission scene is the civilian that only says one line. Right. And the moment they see Scott Glenn, and, and like, he recognizes Scott Glenn as being in the crowd, and he says nothing. Yeah. Ben, what's the scariest minute for you? I mean, it's a little obvious. Like, I think it's one of the most notable moments of the movie is when they are intercutting him killing Kurtz with them slaughtering the bull. I've watched this movie and not been terribly upset by that image before. And this watch through, I found that very upsetting. The Like, seeing the that huge like cross section of of bull as they as they slice it open while it's still alive and i don't know uh if that's like something that's changed in me or if there was something about my mood when i watched it last night but uh it's a a really nightmarish image and you know it's there to explicate what's happening to kurtz because they don't show marlon brando's insides opening up that would be a service to cinema <laughs> if john roderick had been cast in the in the martin sheen part he would have really uh, really hit brando with that with that sword thing what is that thing willard's really chopping wood to get to the center of brando's belly there <laughs> it's a it's a it's like a form of a scythe or a, a, a machete yeah. like a long hand long handle machete it's got like a weird angle on the handle though it's like a uh, sugar cane harvesting thing. Super good home defense weapon. I've, uh, I've got a Louisville Slugger. I feel like it's not going to be as effective. <laughs> well, Louisville Slugger now put a machete blade on the end. <laughs> That's going to be in the uh, Max Fun Store with a uh, Friendly Fire logo <laughs> on the handle. So uh, maxfunstore.com. The scariest moment in the film to me is two moments that have the same... Uh, basically the same vibe and the first one is when the playmates are kind of enticing the soldiers they're like yeah come on you know come on over and a couple of guys actually jump the moat of mps 
and they're just like, we want you to sign our sign our centerfolds. And Bill Graham, playing the you know Hugh Hefner character, sees this imminent disaster, and he's like, start the helicopter. <laughs> okay, let's get out of here. You see this mayhem about to happen, and the result is not going to be pretty. Right. But the menace in that, where you realize that what had seconds before been a very controlled environment, the stage, the lights, the show, and the hubris and confidence, and just feel secure that this line of military policemen is, and and ultimately secure that military discipline is gonna make this a safe environment, or that this is just a, this is like a Bob Hope show. And then the scales tip when we are 15 seconds from a gang rape and there's nothing that can be done about it. You know, there is actually no law here at all. And that, uh, the first time I watched it and still, it just like my stomach drops. I know what's gonna happen. You know, I know they get out, but it's just like, oh my God, like that feeling. It happens again when they approach the Dolong Bridge and and the first thing that they encounter after they see the bridge is all these soldiers with like Samsonite suitcases <laughs> wading out into the river like, take me with you! And that idea that these guys either, that there is so little law here that they're just like, fuck it, I'm out. Yeah. Or even worse, that their tour would be over. They would be short timers or something. You know, like they're, they've been released. They've got their suitcase, but they can't get out. And they're that desperate. And if the boat had stopped even for a second, it would have been overrun and swamped by these guys who would have hijacked it and whatever else. This is a film made up of temples, isn't it? Like the the Playboy Playmate scene is, is the temple to American sexuality, you could say. And the bridge is like a temple that represents the Vietnam War itself and just the idea that they keep building it in order for it to be blown up so that they can build it again and the futility of that. And then the temple at the end, that's what I think. (laughs) I didn't hear you fart, John. No, 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 that was great. That's a super good opening paragraph to your master's thesis. (laughs) Apocalypse Now is a film of temples. Webster's Dictionary defines temples. (laughs) I hate you guys. (laughs) You're right, John. Like those were those were super scary to me because it showed the desperation and how badly people wanted to leave. Like suitcase guy really thought it through. He packed the suitcase and he waited by the river. Yeah, he's he's sitting on that suitcase just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Uh, but but also, I mean, compared to every other war movie that we've ever seen, even in anarchic moments, the scene is usually resolved by the arrival of law and order again. If you think about that scene in Platoon when Charlie Sheen kills Staff Sergeant Barnes and then they're both enveloped in napalm and you feel like this is complete anarchy like the scene fades to black and then it comes up on the U.S. Army coming in and mopping up. 
Right. And order is restored. It shares more in common with a post-apocalyptic movie than a than a war movie in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's you never get a feeling that order is going to be restored. And I think maybe that's why I liked so much the ending where everybody was murdered everybody was killed in a in a huge b-52 bomb run because in a way in an in an awful and very vietnam war kind of way order is restored uh order is restored at least by this clinical bombing campaign of america that where we thought we could just if we delivered enough ordinance onto any location order would be restored yeah but really, it's a movie about three temples. <laughs> the only other example of a movie about three temples is... Uh, the movie Three Temples? Yeah, the movie Three Temples. <laughs> um, should we rate this film? Yeah, why don't we? Every film show has to rate the films they watch, because that's the law. It's a law that we flouted for probably the first dozen episodes. <laughs> and in every episode of this show, I create a rating system based on the film we've seen. So... In Apocalypse Now, there's that scene in the middle, right? There's the uh, the Sampan Massacre scene where they roll up on the boat and everyone dies because they kill everyone on that boat. But there is one survivor, and it's that little puppy <laughs> that they free from the barrel. A puppy that uh, Surf Boy then loses later on. What was the puppy all for? <laughs> I know what the puppy's for. The puppy's for rating this film. <laughs> And so on a rate on a scale of one to five puppies, I'm giving Apocalypse Now four and a half puppies. It is really hard to watch in most places, but it is utterly rewatchable. I also feel like I've seen this film a bunch and I can't look away from some of the imagery. I can't be distracted enough to ignore some of the stories that are told here, like that that crazy polio arm story that Kurtz tells in the temple. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't get any darker than some of the darkness depicted in this film. And I think for that reason, it's a first-rate war film. So, four and a half pups. Yeah, it is a very rewatchable movie, considering how rough it is. Like, it's right. uh, for some reason, it overcomes what Requiem for a Dream can't, which is like, yeah. it is about like the sickest, most shitty stuff that humans do, and yet... I like one wasn't enough. Sure. I find more new things in it every time. Yeah, I think I agree. Four and a half puppies. This is the point at which I don't know. I don't know how to rate this movie because it's a, it's a classic. Well, of, it's a scale of one to five puppies. God damn it. <laughs> one, one, being, one being the lowest rating you can give. Five being the maximum number of puppies. <laughs> Screw you, Adam. <laughs> I just had to fart all over your comment there. Uh, I was at a thrift store the other day, and there were these two hipster dinglings that were playing an organ, like a, a, a big, loud organ. And they were playing it. I mean, first of all, the rule in a thrift store is don't play the pianos, right? Unless you are a concert pianist, because we're all in there doing our own thing. We don't want to hear you plonk, plonk, plonk on a piano. But every single dummy that comes in there that ever knows chopsticks sits and thinks that we want to hear them show off their piano skills. Well, these two dumb hipsters are in there playing this 
organ super loud and they're go and then neither of them can play the piano at all they're just running through all the sounds and i'd been walking around that thrift store for an hour absolutely mortified that i was crop dusting everybody with these awful awful farts <laughs> and i would go back to the to the places where nobody ever goes like back where the cross country skis are <laughs> and i would cr- i would just you know i would just crop dust it it would be awful back there. And then lo and behold, somebody would come along <laughs> looking for cross country skis. And I'd be like, oh, fuck, I got to get out of here, you know? And I'd, I'd run up to some other place, pots and pans, and I'd, and I'd just spoil the whole aisle. And then, oh, here comes a family of four. I just felt terrible. <laughs> it's cute how you think no one would suspect you when <laughs> just looking at you, I would suspect you as the thrift store farter, John. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm not like a, I'm not like a domesticated bear. I'm like a tranquilized bear <laughs> where the tranquilizer hasn't fully taken effect. <laughs> but anyway, these two dummies are playing this organ and I'm just like, oh, finally, I have a situation where crop dusting is going to be the solution to everyone's problem i'm gonna slow roll by these guys and just lay down some covering fire i'm gonna lay down napalm on the tree line and they're not gonna be able to do this thing they're doing they won't even be able to i don't drop care all if they your know farts on my position that's right it's a lovely fucking war and then i could not i had stage fright i had fart anxiety i couldn't do it and i was hovering around them until they started to look over it like can i help you (laughs) and you know i was pretending to look at bow ties or whatever just enjoying the music gentlemen and i was really afraid i was gonna shart i mean the whole thing (laughs) was like really bad and i never was able to produce i'd been i'd been farting for six hours (laughs) and suddenly i was like oh it's all gone like must have, that last one I used up in the pots and pans must have, and it was as bad as the first one, but now they were all gone. And these guys like got there, got to spend 45 minutes annoying the shit out of everybody. Sounds like that thrift store was really your Vietnam job. <laughs> <laughs> there were three temples in that thrift store. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> uh. So I think this is one of the greatest films of all time. It's up there with Blade Runner in terms of watchability, in terms of claustrophobia, in terms of iconic images, quotable scenes. I continue to say probably there are 10 choice lines from this film that I use all the time. I deploy in every situation. Um, I'm not somebody that will say, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That one's fucked out. Yeah, but it, you can't do that anymore. That's like a Bob and Doug McKenzie reference. <laughs> but um, but there are a lot. I mean, this movie just means a tremendous amount to me. But this like dawning realization that I hate Brando in this movie. And I love him as an actor in his earlier work. But I just feel like he he does not reward me. And yet, all of that stuff at the end is its own crazy movie that absolutely is scary, absolutely is horrifying. Like, it is it is an other movie. From the moment that the arrows come raining down on them, we're in a different movie. Yeah. And it's also an incredible movie. So I don't know. I don't know how to ding it for this bad actor because I almost feel like the movie 
the movie succeeds in spite of him. I guess I do feel like that. And so I'm going to give it four and a half puppies. We're united. Wow. Wow. Big score. We only lose a half a puppy to the major actor in the film being a like absolute fucking shit show crater. <laughs> Brando ate half the puppy. Yeah, that's right. Half the puppy is part of Brando's death scene. Strong score. Very strong. Maybe the highest scoring film we've reviewed here. Yeah. What do the Doughboys call it when they all have the same score? Is that the hand-holding club? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just familiar with Golden Plate Club. Oh, yeah. Are you guys, like, you giving some free advertising to other other podcasts? Yeah, to a show that we both enjoy. Oh, I see how it is. They rate chain restaurants. So uh, it's a a lot of fun. I always thought you loved hot salad. No, I don't love... Who likes hot salad? It's disgusting. (laughs) One question we need to ask before we close the show is, who's your guy? Uh, My guy is the guy hanging from the chopper tread who gets his trousers pulled down. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I need to explain that much more than just describing it. Everyone who's had their pants pulled down knows you got to spread those legs so the pants don't go down. (laughs) Fatal flaw. Adam, who's your guy? Uh, My guy is suitcase guy. Uh, (laughs) As the boat is cruising by the bridge, there's one man more desperate than any of them to leave. And yet he's also put in the forethought (laughs) to pack a bag. (laughs) Like, I want to know everything about this guy. Like, did he have to hide the suitcase so everyone else would see that he wasn't trying to desert? What was in the suitcase? Was it grenades or was it cigarettes? I don't know. But suitcase guy is my spirit animal in this film. Because that's the moment in the film you really want to leave the mission, right? That's yeah. that's really the... Uh, the climax to the horror. If that's one of those Force 10 from Navarone suitcases, that guy could be really useful. Get him in the boat. <laughs> that's right. He's full of exploding dog dew. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, John? Um, my guy is uh, the guy out on the wire. Fuck you, G.I. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, G.I. <laughs> and they bring in, they bring over Roach and they're like, you hear him? Roach is like, yeah, man. I hear him. And you just, you picture that guy like just strung up out there some somewhere and that's all he's got left. Just like cursing at that bridge. And the other guy shooting his, shooting his M60 at him <laughs> and missing. <laughs> and he's got the best line in the film where Martin Sheen says, who's your CO? And he turns around right away. Ain't you? Mm-hmm. Oh. I, st- I say that all the time. Anytime somebody asks me uh, where my CO is. Uh, I like the second guy when he says, do you know who's in charge? And then he says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that whole scene uh, is like, oh, uh, it just uh, burned into me, including the scene. And it, sometimes you miss it. But like as they're walking through, this guy like suddenly sits up out of a foot of muddy water. And is like, you stepped on me. <laughs> and and Lance is like, I thought you were dead. And he's like, well, I'm not. And it's just like, who was that guy? Like asleep in, asleep in a foot of water. But no, it's the guy out on the wire. Just picturing him out there. And then that grenade <laughs> comes in out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like the, it's the greatest death scene you don't see. 
I want to give an honorable mention, guy, to uh, to the moment where the boat is at the temple, and uh, Willard and I think it's Chef are talking, and there's that dangling naked butt, <laughs> just like slowly turning between them, and I was like. It is perfectly framed in between them. It's like two guys and a butt in the middle. <laughs> like when that guy dies and they do the Oscar in memoriam, like that's, <laughs> I want to see that in the montage. Dead butt guy. Just like he's, he's pinata butt. Yeah. Cut to the crowd and it's like Meryl Streep getting up out of her chair and then everybody else getting up out of their chair. Yeah. Standing ovation for that guy. <laughs> yeah. Every episode, we randomly select what our next war movie will be. John, uh, we had a, uh, some trouble last time, and I've, I've culled a few things from the list that we can't find online to watch. Um, we're trying to pick movies that are like reasonably easy to get at online for folks that are uh, watching the movies alongside at home. Did you go down a hundred movie list and try and find every one of them online and take the ones out you couldn't find? No, I just like, uh, there were like a couple that I put on that I knew were like, you know, real deep cuts from back in the day when I would go to like a super dank dvd place in manhattan and the guy would be like oh man you gotta watch this you know i was like i bet that's on amazon prime or whatever yeah so we have 93 items on our list today uh would you like to and this has been re-randomized would you like to select a number 79 in honor of uh the year that apocalypse now was released oh man this is a movie that i'm really excited to watch with you guys this is a film about the French and Indian War from 1992, directed by Michael Mann, The Last of the Mohicans. Ooh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. This is one of my favorite shots in movie history in this, in this film. You know, what's crazy is I've read the book, but I never saw this film. Wow. Whoa. No, these were my... 1992 were my peak drug years. I was not spending $8 to see a movie when I could spend that $8 to get like even remotely high on something and in 1992 you could get you could get all the way to high for eight dollars yeah we're gonna rectify that situation next week john Ah, i can't wait get high on mohicans stay alive john we will review this film (laughs) looking forward to it well that will do it for today so for john roderick and adam pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you want to continue the conversation on social media, please use the hashtag Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John's at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can join in the discussion over at Facebook. We've got a group there. We've got a subreddit. There's a whole bunch of places to connect. So please support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All right. Thanks. See you next week. Absolutely. Listen to me.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.